In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. When we find Jesus in the gospel this morning, he has already come riding into Jerusalem, triumphant on a donkey. He has already cleansed the temple, flipping over tables and angering the money changers because of their taking advantage of the people, their commercializing of religion and ritual. And as you know, if you've been following along for the last several weeks, he's well into this conflict that we have heard every week between him and the priests, the Pharisees, the religious elites. They have been sparring now for several days since he comes into Jerusalem. Little battles here and there between them as they try to trap him and get him in trouble, either to paint him as a fraud or a liar, or to get him to say something that will make him an enemy of the state and thus remove him from the game board. There is another scene here in Matthew that the text refers to this morning, and I think it's important for the progression, so I'm gonna spend just a minute telling you about that. The lectionary leaves it out because we hear it in year B and C, the other two years in the lectionary. It's a question about the then Jewish custom of a widow needing to marry her brother after her husband dies. So maybe some of you are remembering this sort of ridiculous question that they posed him about a widow who has to marry seven brothers in one lifetime because her husband keeps dying. And the question that is asked Jesus is, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now, we have to remember it's important that this custom existed in order to protect the woman. It was true in the ancient world often that if your husband died, the woman then was poor and destitute and cast aside and, and was no longer housed or protected along with her children. So this custom, even though it sounds kind of weird and barbaric to us, it was a, a departure from the way that it worked in the ancient world in a good way. It was a protection for the woman. It may not be the perfect protection, but it was protection all the same, so that she had a house, so that she and her children had a home and a place where they could be cared for. But what they're trying to do with this question, of course, is trip him up. They're not interested in the custom itself. They're saying, to whom will she belong in the resurrection? And he answers them by saying this, you are wrong. Isn't that great? You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. From the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astounded at his teaching." So still we have this, this sparring where they're trying to trick him. And just before the episode that we hear in the gospel, what he says to them is, you are wrong. He calls them out on what they're supposed to know best. You are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. Ours is a God of the living, not a God of the dead. And then we're launched immediately into these sort of two episodes that we have in the gospel today which if it feels a little intense, this constant back and forth, it's because it was. This was a huge fight. It was a big conflict, sort of like a high stakes TV show where the audience can turn on you at any point. 
because they could have, and they had in the past. So this time they send a lawyer to ask him about what is sometimes called the greatest commandment, what is sometimes called the summary of the law. It's probably one of the, one of the most well-known passages in scripture, I think. These words are the ones that are quoted most often, and like so many of the things we've heard in the last few weeks, they're also very often taken out of context, and we forget that they happen within the context of Holy Week, within the context of Jesus' walk to the cross, which is really, really important context for what he's saying. So they send this lawyer to ask him this question, and he answers by giving us what is essentially our life's work, our job as Christians, our purpose, our path to fulfillment as spiritual beings who are on a journey to God. This right here is both the path and, God willing, the end point. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus is doing here is positioning himself sort of in opposition and in contrast to the other great religious teachers of the day. He's saying, look at me as I reinterpret this tradition. He's re-explaining who God is and what God expects of God's people. And it's important, as it has been the last several weeks, to keep in mind that this is a Jewish teacher who's talking to Jewish crowds. There is no conflict at this point in the text between Jew and Christian because Christians don't exist. Jesus is a Jewish teacher. And what he's doing is reinterpreting the law, which was part of the tradition. That's what the Pharisees would have done, as well as the scribes and the Sadducees and all the religious elites. Their, their tradition is about looking at the word and reinterpreting it and re-understanding it. And so what Jesus does here is give a new foundation of the law, and it does become the very heart and soul of Christianity. But it's important for us to remember that that happens later. What Jesus is doing is reforming the law. He's reforming the covenant. He's reframing God's intent so that we might understand it differently. And the truth is that for us, when we come to this text, especially understanding what Jesus is about to do in the next couple of days, this is the whole game. This is the whole thing right here. Love God with all that you are and all that you have, with every fiber of your being, with, as Mary Oliver would say, the soft animal of your body. Let God be your heart's desire and find fulfillment in this law, in these relationships with God and neighbor. And if we look carefully at the language here in the first commandment that Jesus gives us, I want to say in the Greek, it is very literal. This is a very clean translation. And I think it's intentional on Jesus' part because it's connected to the second part of this passage. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God. Now in the next part of the gospel, Jesus shifts the conversation and he sort of takes it back a little bit. We've been hearing all of these people ask him questions for the last several weeks and now he sort of reverses the conversation and changes the narrative and asks a question himself. Who do you think the Messiah is? Whose son is he? And it's sort of a confusing text because what Jesus is doing in the middle is quoting a portion of Psalm 119. 
And it looks to us, you know, it, it, it's not cited, so it looks to us just like part of the conversation. But what he's doing is referring to a piece of the psalm that he believes David wrote. He's giving authorship of that psalm, which in our text is anonymous, but very well may have been David. And he's relying on the tradition that the priests would have very well known that the Messiah would come out of David's line, that the Messiah would be the son of David. Remember, God makes this promise to David and to David's descendants that the time would come again when David's line would sit upon the throne and rule over the people and over Jerusalem. So Jesus is sort of acknowledging this tradition and kind of changing it and also still putting himself squarely in the landscape of it. The whole passage is as if he's saying, love the Lord your God with everything you have and remember that I am that Lord. Even my ancestor David calls me Lord. Jesus is claiming Messiahship. He's claiming himself as a descendant of David, but also as Messiah, as the one coming into the world and saying even David, the great king, would bend his knee to me, to his descendant, to one who is greater than himself. And so what he's saying to them is essentially, if David would recognize me, if he knew me already when he wrote this psalm, if he believed in what God was doing, if he knew me, then how come you don't? And there is sort of a, a logical answer to that. And part of it is that we know that what Jesus is doing is different than what was expected of the Messiah in this time and in this place. We know that in the next few days, as Jesus travels through the rest of Holy Week, that he will live out, that he will take on, that he will embody and incarnate these two commandments that he gives us to love God with everything that he is and to love his neighbor as himself. We know that as son and as God, he will lay down his life, doing exactly as the creator asks and exactly as was planned from the beginning of time. And we know that he'll do it for us, that he will lay down his life for us while still loving his neighbors and everyone around him fiercely. He goes on to teach and love and challenge and raise up his disciples in the rest of this week. And even as other people will torture and wound and persecute him, he refuses every opportunity to be violent to anyone that is around him, toward any one of his neighbors. And you'll notice that in this story, his neighbor is no longer defined as someone who is his kin as part of his tribe. He counts among his neighbors the people who are his enemies, the people who are killing him. And so he will make of his life these two commandments and show us in doing so this new shape of the law, this new living of the law, this new image of the law that is not just a list of things that we ought to do, which we get a little bit of in the text from Leviticus. There are several places in Hebrew scripture where the law is received, right? The best known is probably on the tablets with Moses at the mountain, but we have it in several other places like the passage in Leviticus as well. And what Jesus is saying is that all of that can be condensed into these two commandments. But this is the opposite of what anyone expected of him. He was supposed to come and lead a physical and a violent revolution to take the throne of David by force, to rule over the Jews and to kick out the Romans. This is the Messiah that they expected. 
This is the Messiah with political power and might and violence. But this is not who our Messiah is. He comes to lead a transformation. And it is a transformation pointed toward justice and real physical literal change, but it begins instead with the path to joy and fulfillment and peace through love and kindness and compassion and sacrifice. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. He's asking for us and for them in this moment to see him as that Lord, to make him the one thing that matters most, to let all of our being and everything we are and everything we have and the soft animal of our body and the best efforts and all of our will and all of our strength to be committed to the love of this one Lord who bids us love each other. In the last several weeks, we've heard several times in Hebrew scriptures and in Jesus' own words, this, this point that he's trying to drive home that there is no other God. There is no other way. There is no other life. And there should be nothing that takes that primacy of place in our lives, except this one God who always chooses love. So I would ask you to consider this week how you choose this love in your life. How you choose this God who bids you love your neighbor. How you choose your own sacrifice, your own compassion, your own kindness that you offer to your neighbors. Perhaps, I think for all of us, there are things, people, rhythms, patterns, relationships that stand in our way that seek to claim our allegiance and our attention. This is an opportunity again, just as it is in Lent and Holy Week, to identify those things and to reprioritize, to move this Lord back up to the top where he belongs. And to remember that this is the only path to which there is fulfillment and joy. It is an invitation not only to fulfillment and joy, now it is an invitation to eternal life as well. Love the Lord your God, he says. I am that Lord, and love your neighbor too. Amen.